Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. I, uh, I'm going to refer to myself on many occasions today to make a point. I'll be the illustration of my own message. And that's kind of like the guy saying, I'm going now. If I return during my absence, please hold me till I get back. <laughs> that really confused you. I could, I could feel that oxygen sucked right out of the room for a second there. Like, what did he say? But I'm trying to tell you that I will refer to personal experience because I could talk about what God did for Peter, James, and John. But when I tell you what God did for Dave, it just means a lot more. And not that what he didn't do for them isn't important. In fact, it's the precedent they set that we can have expectation of what God can do for us. But at the same time, it's what God does for you the world wants to hear. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm going to let you know that out in the foyer, we have a few items. I'll do this to get it out of the way. And I, I please, I, I beg your indulgence again. I'm not here to sell you stuff. Uh, I am going to tell you that I don't take any royalties our sales percentages, everything goes to our warrior program. Uh, we, I just came from there to here. I went through Fort Worth, got on the plane in Dallas and flew here. And we had uh, a lodge filled, lodge and all the cabins filled with warriors that are hurting and broken that have come to me. They do this for a week at a time. And sometimes we have, have two ranches. Sometimes I have two programs going at the same time. Sometimes I have two programs going in one ranch at a time. I mean, it's no end to the brokenness our warriors are facing coming out of war. War's hell, and that's not cursing when I say that. Anyway, we have a shirt. Uh, it's called Operation Warrior Reconnect, and uh, it's a walking billboard. This is the female version of it. You can see it's shaped like this. And this is the male version of it. It's shaped like this. <laughs> <clears throat> And well, if you're a Democrat, you think men can get pregnant, so. <laughs> we have a shirt for Special Forces. It's the motto of the Green Beret, to free the oppressed and embedded in the actual Green Beret image of the knife is 418 from Luke 418. It just, four, it just says 418 to because America loves a, they love a mystery, secret. 418 is that Jesus came to deliver those that are oppressed. And Tim Tebow put 316 on his cheek for the championship game, Googled 92 million times. Wow. Now, I doubt that 92 million people are going to Google this shirt. But if you're standing at Walmart, one guy standing behind you may say, what's that 418? If you just Google 418, it'll come up that Jesus came to deliver the oppressed. And I believe... Jesus is the best captain of the Green Bray we could ever have. Amen. Uh, I just hired a captain of the Green Bray. Uh, actually, I started training five years ago. And three years ago, I hired him full time. He was shot through the throat, went through the vocal cords, through the jugular vein. We should have bled him out right then. And he did bleed out. You can, if you Google... Uh, 700 Club Military, if you can just remember those two things, 700 Club Military, 
You can, read, you can see the story of John Arroyo when the doctors say he shouldn't be alive. The bullet went through his jugular and lodged in his shoulder. Not in Afghanistan, not Iraq, but Fort Hood when the mass murderer tried to kill all those people. He took a hit and he lived to tell the story. And it's a great story. And he, uh, he wrote a book. Actually, I've required him to write a book <laughs> called Attack at Home. And it's a, a marvelous book and you'll enjoy it. It's available at the table back there. But uh, there's a lot of items. Catch-22 is a program for our military veterans. 22 a day commit suicide. Yesterday, 22. Today, 22. Tomorrow, 22. It just never stops. And believe me, I know, I know the feeling. Uh, right after I was injured, within a few days, I tried to take my life because I didn't want my wife to see what was left because everything not covered was blown off to the bone. And uh, I promised her I'd be back without a scar. And I kind of blew that one. And... <laughs> I didn't want her to see me, so I thought if I kill myself, they won't open the casket. And I keep that promise to the degree that I could. So the enemy tries to get veterans to take their life because you get imprinted on the retina of your memory pictures of things that humans should never see, do things that humans should never do, be part of something you should never be part of. And war will extract from all your life, the innocence you grew up with, it just destroys it. I'm a preacher's kid, man. I never had a black eye. I didn't know who John Wayne was until I was 21. We didn't have a TV. My dad said every home should have a TV in the attic. <laughs> That's what he said. He didn't, we never had a TV. I see, you know, people say, how come you never did drugs or alcohol or have sex before marriage? Well, we didn't have a TV. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, uh, this Catch-22 program, there's uh, 22 beads made of lava rock, and there's a little bottle in there with essence of orange oil. And on the card is the, this, is the story or the uh, review by George Washington University doctors that found out essence of orange oil comes post-traumatic stress. Isn't that interesting? It's not myrrh, it's not frankincense, it's orange. Them there round things that come orange you eat. And, and that peel has a strong appeal to calm post-traumatic stress. It's available back there. A lot of things, I, I'm sorry to just keep going and going, but we have a video called Scars and Stripes. That's a cool title. And it was uh, recorded at a church I go to annually uh, there in Fort Worth area. It's uh, Dr. Robert Morse and uh, Gateway Church. They did a good job putting together on video. You really need a lot of humor. And then finally, two books. One is called, actually, I have another book. I didn't wrote, no, it was back there. It's not in this list. But I have one called War and Recovery, which you can read like a, uh, very much like a devotional. And it's short stories from the battlefield to the mission field. Tremendous scriptural references that can help you go through what you may be going through. And then my autobiography called Scarred, which seemed like a good title for an autobiography. And there's another book back here. I don't have it up here. It's called Nobody's Ever Cried for Me. And it's a, it's a compilation of short stories from public schools. I start the Ohio school tour. and I go to Vietnam a week from tomorrow. Then I get back. I start in schools in Ohio. And I'll speak to 50,000 kids a day. Easy. I used to speak in five schools a day. Now they give me a stadium and they bust five schools in to hear me. Isn't that cool? So I'll get all these kids. And... 
boy, I get scrutinized, man. I get all these liberals chasing me around with microphones and just begging me to say the wrong thing, you know. I tantalize them, you know what I'm saying? Come tonight, wait till you hear what I'm going to say tonight. You know? But uh, that book, uh, Nobody's Ever Cried For Me, is a statement to me by a little 15-year-old girl in school, Permian Basin High School in Odessa, Texas. And she came to me and she said, I, I got to talk to you alone. I said, well, I don't talk to girls alone, but I said, if you get your counselor, we'll talk. So we went to the counselor's office, and he was very thoughtful and moved himself as far away and still be in the office where I could have accountability, but he didn't want her to be uh, feel like she was subject to his scrutiny. And I wasn't even sat down yet in the little, it's one of those little desks that has a little top in front of you. And she had one, and the desktops were butted, butted up against each other. I was still about to sit down, and she just blurted out, my stepdaddy raped me three times, and I'm going to kill him. I know the difference in a promise and a threat, and my friend, this was no promise, uh, uh, no threat. She, she was out to get him. She had blood in her eye. And I had to stop right then. If you don't know the tightrope I walk, this will give you a little tiny clue. I said, before you say another word, young lady, you have to know that if you verify what you just said to me, the police have to be called. This school is under obligation that minors that, are, uh, that face any kind of abuse has to be reported. They lose federal funding. So are you willing to stand by that story? She said, I stand by it. He's still in prison for what he did to that little girl. Thank you. Thank you, America. And one of the cardinal rules is you never touch your client. Number two, especially if it's a female. Number three, especially if it's a minor. Whenever she told me that, I started crying. And she reached across and wiped the tears off my face. And she said, it's okay, mister. You'll be fine. We have a counselor. <laughs> I felt that big. I threw my arms around her, and she's patting me on the back. It was embarrassing. Now you wonder why we're in trouble we have today in schools. Madeline Murray O'Hare went before Congress and got prayer kicked out of schools. And when she did, she got kicked out of schools. All the sanity that would be rightfully ours for our children today, and it's gone. You take God out, you take intelligence out. Anyway, all that said, you can use your credit card, your neighbor's card. Hey, it's in your driveway you found. No, I'm kidding. You're looking me over, and I'm looking you over, and I understand that. Uh, you're wondering what happened to me, and I was wondering. <laughs> I wonder how y'all doing? I go in public school and I say, I have scars and you have pimples. We're even. And boy, I get all kinds of response from that. Uh, I tell girls that I, was, that my wife and I, well, actually, I asked her to marry me when I was 16, and she slapped me because she was 13. And she said, I'm only 13 years old. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. She slapped me again. <laughs> And she didn't think it was funny. And I told her how her dad, Mr. Smith N. Wesson, <clears throat> told me that it, I couldn't marry her until she graduated from high school. And when I tell these kids in public schools that we were both virgin, the girls give me standing ovations. The boys, they kind of salute in a peculiar way. Yeah, we, you've seen that. They call it the California Heidi in Texas. And uh, yet... If we don't stand for something, these kids will continue to fall for everything that comes down the pipe. That's truth. So I'm still a voice in a world of darkness. And how in the world I got there, I had a guy text me last night, asked me, 
how'd you get in public schools, Dave? I want to get in public schools. I want to talk about bullying. I said, dude, you're too old, you're too ugly. And, and anybody as ugly as he is has to have a testimony. I mean, whoo, he, he can sneak up on a glass of water and the guy just... He is, and he's a great friend. I won't tell you his name, but he wrote a lot of books. His initials, his initials are Mike Evans. <laughs> but he, he and I are really good. So how do I end up in schools? I'll tell you how. When you get hurt and you're disfigured, you, know, you got to remember, five years ago, I didn't have the nose. Five years ago, no eyelids, no lips. So I go in public schools. Kids would just, they just jaw-dropped at me that I would even show up. And, and looking the way I did. And I did that for 50 years. Well, 47. And I, I just found people all the time ugly. I mean, they were burned. You know, they said, what happened to your face? I said, what happened to your mother? Dude, you're ugly. Uh, so, you know, I learned how to live in, I learned how to live in this world. But I learned how to use my negative for a positive. And see, here's the negative. That's vertical, uh, horizontal relationships. When you have the vertical you turn a negative into a positive, that vertical relationship with Christ. And they want to know what made it work. What, what made it work? Well, in the military in particular, you know, they, they're very touchy about religion. Well, I'm a contractor with the Department of Defense. They don't call me because I'm good looking. I'm better but not good. You know, they, they say you're looking good, but nobody says I'm good looking. It's a big difference. Uh, they don't call me because of my physical strength. I have to sit down to talk. I jumped out of a helicopter in Iraq in 2010, shattered six vertebrae. They put in 12 screws and two rods so I can't stand long. And I'm embarrassed to sit during praise and worship. I hope none of that offended you, which I love your praise and worship. I love your team and your drummer, even if he is surrounded by bulletproof glass. <laughs> and, but all of the things that I, I enjoy about the house of God and church and all that, Chaplains don't even get talked about. They asked me to share it. As a contractor, they say, talk about your faith because that's part of it. Faith is part of the fundamental ingredients for survival and resilience. Because if you don't have faith, you're not going to make it. It's just that simple. You're not going to make it. And so they call me, uh, and it's not because of my intellect either. I'm not that smart. I was in the top 10%. It was the lower one-third of my class. I majored in math, and five out of four people don't understand fractions. If you didn't get that, you were in my class. I can see that right now. <laughs> Somebody say, yes, amen, brother. Five out of four. <laughs> so why do they call me? Same reason the world's looking for you. In this world of pain and fear and every ungodly thing can be thrown at us politically and everything that happens medically and, and pandemic, the world's looking for somebody with a little bit of hope. And I'm sitting in front of a church full of people just like that, full of hope. I love you. I love it. We are the answer. And so uh, I grew up to believe in Christ. I mean, I, I was almost born in church. They did get me to the hospital in time. I went with my mom. <laughs> Five out of four people. Okay. Uh, and so when I was born, she didn't survive very well. In fact, she died from my birth many decades later. Curled up in fetal position in a nursing home. She just, I, she never survived me. Uh, I was raised by a Mexican nanny 
And my first language was Spanish. I didn't speak English until I was six years old. They told me I had to learn English, go to school. And then they told me I was not a Mexican, <laughs> which blew my Latino mind. <laughs> it really did, because I thought I would. And I'll tell you what it was. The first time in my life that I was not the man I thought I was. And it would set a pattern of understanding in the pattern of events that would again and again throughout my life tell me, you're not the man you think you are, Dave. I'm not what I, you know, I think all of us have a certain amount of inflated ego, if I can put it that way. Some of us, maybe a little more than others. You're a lot worse than I am, of course. <laughs> but whenever you find out you're not what you thought you were, it's called self-discovery. And that is a very difficult moment in everyone's life. And until you've had that moment, you don't know Christ. You cannot know Christ without knowing who you are. Because until you find out your need for Christ, you know, it's like in Alcoholics Anonymous, they tell me that you have to admit first you, you're an alcoholic before they can help you. Uh, if we don't acknowledge the fact that we are without Christ and we're sinners, how can we be helped? And it's that moment of self-discovery. I, I, I'll mention several of those moments in my life, but one of them was finding out I wasn't the Mexican I thought I was. And... Uh, then uh, I, I fall in love and I ask her to marry me and I think I'm man enough to be her husband at 16 and she's woman enough to be my wife at 13. Her dad showed me I was not the man I thought I was. <laughs> and that he had one eye on a barrel about that long and it spoke volumes to me. And it was not a shotgun wedding, it was a 45 caliber pistol. And, uh, but I'm teasing, but... I, I, there's so much about life that we have to discover about us and nothing I know of can bring to that surface like war. Nothing. And that's for the civilian population as well if that war comes home as it's very likely to happen in this country because we're not going to be exempt much longer from war. Um, generals, several line officers, I'm not talking about Generals in, um, this, I, I'm not even going to finish that statement because I don't want to disqualify certain generals. I'll just put it this way. Generals that I work with in Iraq, one of them, uh, I'm pushing the limits. I don't want to even call his name. I will tell you, two generals have told me in the last six months the next war in America, the next war the United States will be involved in will be in Alaska. Alaska. It's the closest place you can be out of this country being communist Russia. And uh, the alliance between Russia and China is growing stronger every day. And I'm just here to tell you, if ever a country needed Jesus, we need Jesus because we're not the country we think we are. Yeah, exactly. Any more than I was the man I thought I was. And self-discovery found me looking for somebody bigger than me that could get me through what was bigger than me. Because we need Jesus. And so uh, I ended up going to Bible college and taking my little sweet wife when she graduated, went to Bible college. And everything's great right until I got this draft notice that I was going to be inducted in the Army. So I ran out and joined the Navy so I wouldn't get hurt serving in the Army. <laughs> got up that morning, had a bad decade. And honestly, a preacher's kid, how did I end up in the military to start with? I had an exemption because I was training for ministry, I was married, and I was a college student. Three exemptions. All three of them, any one of all three. 
would have got me. A three-standard cord is not easily broken. Why wouldn't all three of them get me exempted? Because I chose not to be exempted. Wow. That morning, I got to, I'll tell you how it happened. It's a, it's a crazy sequence of events. But I opened my post office box, and there's a draft notice because my grades were below sea level. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and uh, it didn't matter if I had exemptions or not. The, the first contact, initial contact, is you're being drafted. Then if you're exempt, then the, you have to show your exemption. And so uh, my wife and I were just brand new married, and I had to set the alarm. This is going to tell you how old I am. I had to set the alarm to get me up at 4 o'clock to go get dressed, and by 5 o'clock be on my way to Dallas to be 6 o'clock to be in front of uh, the draft board and take my physical. The little clock clicked before the tubes warmed up. <laughs> that tells you how old I am. Some of you look at me, what? You're so young, you don't even know what a tube is. And uh, it took about three or four seconds, and the news came on, and this is what I heard on the 4 o'clock top-of-the-hour news. A young Marine was killed in the DMZ in the northern part of South Vietnam today. That's an exact quote. I remember it indelibly burned in my memory. A young Marine was killed in what was called the DMZ. I don't know what it was, but it's, it's Vietnam in my brain. It's all jungle. You know, whenever you are half asleep and half awake, it's called REM sleep. That's rapid eye movement. Your eyes are moving, tracing activity in a dream that is moving at milliseconds, which seems like an hour. In a matter of seconds, I dreamed what I was hearing. I was walking through the jungle in the DMZ in the northern part of South Vietnam and came upon a dead Marine. I rolled his body over. What I saw was so shocking, I fell, I jumped so vehemently, I fell out of bed. And my little wife leaned over the bed laughing and she said, are you all right? You just fell out of bed. I said, no, I'm not all right. She said, Why? what's wrong, baby? I said, I'm going to go take my physical. I will not come back a civilian. She said, oh, yes, you will. I said, oh, no, I won't. I said, I love you, Brenda. I would die for you, and I may one day do just that. I said, I'm not going to come back a civilian. She said, why? You got letters of exemption. I said, a Marine died for me this morning. You see, when I rolled over the body, I looked down. The face in that helmet was my own. And it so shocked me, I leaped clear out of the bed. So that morning when I passed my physical with an O plus on the blood test, I studied all night for that. <laughs> I can tell you a lot. Of, all right, I'm going to be serious. House of God. <laughs> and they told me that I was going to be inducted. So I went out and joined the Navy and thought I'd see the world on a battleship because they couldn't float that in a rice paddy. <laughs> I'd be safe. I've never been on a ship yet except to visit one for like Big Mo there in Hawaii. Yeah, they made a movie with that one. So I, how did I end up in the Navy Special Forces? Because they were short of gunners on PBRs, river patrol boats that trained right over here at Naval Amphibious Base. That's where I took all my training. I was assigned to SEAL Team 1, but I was not a SEAL. I was a Brownwater Black Beret, and today we are known as Special Boat Teams. Three groups train in our house, our base there. Special Dive Vehicle Teams, little one- and two-man submarines that go up and down the coastline of North Korea, listen to everything Kim Jong-un says in the bathroom. <laughs> 
And then you have the brown water, black brayer, special boat teams. And then you have the Navy SEALs. And I was assigned to SEAL Team 1, trained by a SEAL commander, and he taught me all kinds of stuff I didn't know how to do before he got hold of me. My word, that man taught me how to run. I don't know if you've ever seen a fat man run. I was still jiggling 15 minutes after we were through running. Oh, that was horrible. And they're mean. They eat rocks. They eat their own young. <laughs> they eat other people's young. They're not proud. <laughs> All this with a preacher's kid. I'm running along with these guys, and they're all throwing up from being drunk the night before, and it has a strange mixture of, of alcohol and, and pizza. And, and then I start throwing up because I didn't even have anything to eat or drink, and I'm just throwing up smelling that. I wasn't a man I thought I was. And I found out that all the time I'm running that eight, maybe 15 miles, I don't know how long it was, my commander was running all eight miles backwards screaming at me. He ran all those miles backwards. He was more of a man than I thought I was. And then I ended up kissing my wife goodbye at the airport. A man's man, no tears, right? No tears. And she says, Davey, are you coming back? I said, I'll be back without a scar. Dumbest thing I could have said. Because when I said I felt a chill up my spine, I just made a promise I cannot keep. We were told, and they showed us evidence by numbers, we had the highest KIA per capita of any organization in the Vietnam War. But you can't prove it. If they don't have a body, you're not KIA, even though you're, they know you're dead. You're MIA until they get a body or a body part that is positively you. So when I said, I'll be back without a scar, I knew if I come back at all, I won't be the man she married. She deserved better than me. And 54 years later, she ran off with another guy. She left me for another man. His name is Jesus, and I know where he lives. Yeah. I know where he lives. And if you think I'm making fun of it, I'm laughing with her because when she got there and threw her arms around him, she said, Dave who? She's never been so happy. I've never been so sad. And one day that happiness and sadness will come together in a great reunion. But I'm not going to heaven. I'm not going to heaven to see Brenda first. I'm going to heaven to see Jesus. And I'll find Brenda because she'll be hanging right next to him. I know her. All that said, I ended up in Vietnam. I was there for eight months, injured two times, three days apart. The last injury was on the 26th of July. Yes, Young person, 1969, right after the War of 1812. <laughs> but I was injured on 23rd also, so I took two injuries back to back. And the 26th would put me down from, from that point on that I'd never, I'd never get over it. I just have to get through it. I'll never get over it, not in this life. And on 26th July, I picked up a hand grenade, a white phosphorus grenade. You military guys know what I'm talking about. Nicknamed Willie P, and I pulled back to throw it. It burns at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's in a canister as cool as a Coca-Cola can. But if that canister is compromised and oxygen gets in and touches that phosphorus, it automatically explodes, spontaneous combustion. The bullet cracked the canister and it blew right here. And half my skin came off in seconds. I looked down, my face was on my boots. I could see my heart beating. Skin was dripping off my arms and no one had to tell me. No one had to tell me it was over. 
I knew I was dead meat. In fact, this is honest to you. I thought maybe I was dead because I've never been dead and know what dead is. So I didn't know if I was dead or not. And then I realized, wait a minute, I can see my heart beating. So if it's still beating, I'm not dead. And with that beating my heart, it shoot blood out of a severed artery in my wrist. I'm not dead. And the phosphorus that was consuming my flesh carterized that artery and sealed it off and saved my life. Wow. What a contradiction. The thing is killing me is now saving my life. It's kind of like getting saved. Kills the flesh that the spirit might live. Amen. How's that for a good illustration? That'll preach. Uh, I went blind in my eye, deaf in my ear. All that came off. I mean, if it's not covered, it was gone. Gone. And my ears are artificial. Some of you may have noticed it's not colored properly. It's getting a little older. I got I get new ones every. I got 24 of them. Actually, 23. I gave one away to the kid that brought the most to Sunday school. <laughs> Forty some years ago, this little kid. Can I have one here? I said, you bring you bring more than anybody else Sunday school. I'll give you one. He did. Twenty years after that or so, I was speaking for a FFA convention. I had 10,000 kids. One tall, red-headed, freckle-faced boy walked, Hey, Mr. Reaver, you remember me? No, I don't remember you. I'm Ricky Wheeler. You're Ricky? Last time I saw you, he reached in his pocket, pulled out my ear. <laughs> I said, well, now I figured out what all that jingle jangle was. <laughs> Let me tell you a quick story. You got a minute? I was in Iraq, as you know, I, I, working with DOD. I, I get sent overseas a lot. Well, I was in Iraq with a special ops operation one night. We were in Tikrit, and we let the back of the C-130 down. We had some detainees chained to the deck, chained to the floor. And so everybody got, gets off to take a bathroom break. Well, you don't turn lights on. You're in the middle of a combat zone, 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm the last one. I'm a little bit slower, and I come out. And I'm throwing on my body armor to get on. I'm the last guy to board. When I threw my body armor and hit my artificial and knocked it off and landed on the ramp. All you military know what's on that ramp. A lot of divots and channels and wheels and whatever. My ear got down in one of those crevices. I couldn't find it. You don't turn light on. What do you do? So I said to my four Navy, I have four SEALs that are my bodyguard. I said, I lost my ear. They said, why? I said, my ear fell down here. It's on the, it's on the deck here. They said, what? I said, my ear, it's on the deck. Find it. They said, your ear? I said, yes, that thing that's on the side of your head, yours doesn't come off like mine does. I said, it's down here. They're down there feeling around in the dark trying to find me, and I start laughing. Here are these mighty men of war looking for my ear at 2 o'clock in the morning in Tikrit. I saw, he, one of them said, he used language I don't use. He said, man, you're just making us look like a bunch of blank, blank idiots. He said, you didn't lose your ear. I said, no, I did, really. I said, but one of you is close. I can hear you breathing. <laughs> Wait, it gets better. One of the seals said, dude, is it me? <laughs> and he's defending my country, and he thinks I can hear. It fell off one night. I was preaching in Jamaica. It fell off. I didn't know what was wrong. Everybody goes, and they're pointing at me. I check my fly because something's not right, you know. And so my fly's good. I look around, my ear's laying on my shoulder. It peeled off like a wet band. I stuck it back on. They thought it was a miracle, and they all got saved. That's a true story. And what's bad is I can't tell them it's a phony ear. Then they would think I was a phony evangelist. They would have stoned me. And pastor would like it if I came and told you I went to Jamaica 
I got stoned. <laughs> Everybody goes down there and gets stoned. All right, let's get serious. No, let's don't. I like it not getting serious. So I ended up that day with injuries that left me blind in my eye, deaf in my ear. I had my hearing and my eyesight back. Right in the middle of COVID lockdown, the doctors did surgery on my right eye and they cut off all the scar tissue and found out when they took it off, I could see 2020 with a blind eye. Now I can see it was 20, it's 23 now. The better to see you in. And they made my lips, as I mentioned. And I'm just, life's good when it hurts the most sometimes. Life is still good, isn't it? Aren't you glad you know Jesus? Because out of all the tragedies most people have, they, they kill themselves. Oh, it hurt too much. I can't deal with it. Oh, man. The devil told me the other day I was in, I was in Hawaii. I was over with Special Operations Command Pacific in, uh, in, in Pearl Harbor. And I had 150 commanders from all over the Pacific, some right out, of, right out of this part of the state. And that morning before I went over to speak, I was on the 14th floor, which is the general's quarters up there. And I have this beautiful, beautiful balcony. I'm sitting on the balcony, and the devil came to me. I didn't see him, hear him. I could say I smelled him, but because he just stinks anyway, you know. He said, if you jump, you can be with Brendan three to four seconds. I said, devil, you're stupid. Don't you know I'm scared of heights? <laughs> I wouldn't have jumped off the bottom floor balcony. That's only eight inches, dude. So the devil wants to take us out. Yeah. And on occasions, whenever you think you're strong, that's when you're weak. But when I'm weak... I learned to lean on Jesus before he leans on me. That's when I'm strong. Amen. It's all right to lean on Jesus. So I, I jumped in the water. My skin was floating all around me. I was beside myself. Come on now, that's funny. I don't care who you are. I needed to pull myself together. But I crawled up on the bank of the river, and I fell over backwards, and my team thought I died. And they called the Pentagon by radio through my chain of command that came right through NAB that I was KIA, killed and they had a body to prove it. They had my body. 34 years later, I got a letter from the president apologizing for thinking I was dead. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I'm not dead. The news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. Mark, Mark Twain said that first. But that day, I... I I looked down, I could see inside me, and I know I'm not supposed to be alive, so I thought I was dead. And a helicopter landed to pick me up, and they rolled me on the stretcher. I was still burning. Phosphorus burns in water. You can't extinguish it. It has to burn itself out. And when I'm on my back, gravity was pulling it through me, and it was burned right through the solar plexus, right beneath my vocal cords. And when they rolled me over onto the stretcher, Gravity pulled it back the other way before it could burn through into my spine and kill me. Do you understand? This thing, this story's bigger than me, folks. This is a God thing. It has nothing to do with me. I, well, Brother Dave, you're a man of God. Had nothing to do with man of God. I was over there to kill people. They were over there to kill me. God had a plan for my life, just like he has one for your life. Doesn't qualify me to be a better man because he's got a plan for my life. I'm no better than anyone in this room. In fact, I consider most men to be a lot better man than I am because I've been disappointed in myself so many times. But every time I'm disappointed in who I am, he comes through bigger in life for me and he's bigger than what I thought I was and he gets me through it. Just like you, 
Without Jesus, I, I, I would have taken my life. There's no way I'd have stayed to see what happened next. And uh, they rolled me onto another stretcher. Stretcher caught fire, landed on my head. Yeah. You ever have one of those days? <laughs> they rolled me up in wet blankets and got me on another stretcher. And away we go. And the medics filling out my death report in the helicopter. And the reason I haven't told you what it felt like is because until in the helicopter, I didn't feel anything to tell you what it felt like. I was in shock, but when I jumped in that river, the water forced consciousness on me, and I never passed out in the middle of all the shock. But I never felt a thing. I cannot tell you one thing what it feels like to have a hand grenade blow up in my face. I don't have any idea what it feels like, because I don't remember it. But in the helicopter, I remember when the shock wore off and the pain hit. I let out a yelp, and when I did, he thought I was dead. He thought I came to life. He almost jumped out of the helicopter. <laughs> True story. The pilot lost control. We're dropping like a rocket. I thought, oh, Lord, we're going to crash. I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> and you know what? There's not a devil in or out of hell big enough to pluck you out of the hand of God. <laughs> you belong to Jesus. You belong to him. So you feel like there's no hope. There is hope. My hope is in Jesus. And boy, I tell you, he came through that day. They got me to Japan, and they changed aircraft. Of course, they got me on a big hospital jet and flew me to Japan. I spent a few nights in Vietnam in the Tonsonette Airport Hospital. I don't know how long. I, from that time for the next year, I, I very seldom no difference in night and day. There were no windows. And you're in this room on a bed that turns all the time, keeps you from getting pneumonia. You just don't know, night from day. You just, when you're awake, you're awake. When you're not, you're not. And in Japan, I asked for a mirror, and they stopped my bed with my face up, and they brought me a mirror and held it over my face. And that's when I saw a little teenage girl couldn't deal with what I saw. It's not going to happen. I took it out of God's hands. I took it out of my doctor's hands. These are the best doctors in the world. And I assumed control of my own destiny. Again, thinking I'm the man I am. How can you be the man you think you are and not be the man you wish you were at the same time? It's the conflict of interest between trying to be what you know your little wife deserves and knowing what she's about to get. And I said, no way. She'll never see, if, if I kill myself, they'll never open the casket. And I pulled the tube out and I laid my head back and I waited to die. And I got hungry. <laughs> the wrong tube. <laughs> that was lunch dripping on the floor. Not my life. And if you smell a pizza, you're singing that old tune, plug it in, plug it in, because you don't want to die. And you listen to me. You listen to me. Every, every soul with a heart beating in your bosom right now, you listen to me. Suicide's not your solution. And if you've been thinking about it, don't be offended if I say I know how you feel. But it's not your solution. I didn't give myself this life. God gave me this life, and I don't have the right to take it away from him. 
But I will never judge somebody that takes their life because if you have a broken leg, do you judge that broken leg for not being able to hold up the body that it's designed to hold up? No. The leg's broken. Someone has a broken mind, do you judge them because they took their life because their mind was broken? It didn't support their system like it should. Do you blame them? Don't, we don't need to be blaming people for anything to start with. We, it's not our right to judge them. While I may never be quick to blame anybody for suicide, I'm also quick to say it's not the solution. Hang in there, baby. You can make this. You can get through it. Well, he left me. Well, so he did. God's got somebody better. God's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you. And I learned good lessons out of losing my wife. One, I tell you, I tell this to all men. Two lessons I learned. One, you kiss that woman that you love, call your wife. You kiss her every night and tell her how much you love her. And then die first and make her pay all the bills. Hey, no fun at all. Oh, my word. I never got into so much trouble in my life trying to figure out how to write a check. I hadn't written a check in 50 years. I felt like a basketball player bouncing checks everywhere. <laughs> I just didn't know how to do it. And finally, I, I called my daughter up. She's a big-time real estate agent. Help, baby, help me. And so she's been helping me. So I want to conclude by telling you, they flew me from Japan to America as punishment because they knew I'd die on the airplane. And they wanted originally for me just to die in the hospital with nurses and doctors and everybody, you know. No, they were mad at me because I tried to kill myself. They took my last will and testament. Now, why would they do that if they think you're going to live? They took my last will and testament, put me on the airplane, and they sent me all the way to San Antonio, Texas. Put me in the hospital at Brook Army Medical Center. I was there for a year and two months. 13 surgeries. And I'm going to close with two illustrations. I want to share the second one first. They put me in the intensive care unit, the ICU, and I didn't know what that meant. I'd never been in one. That's when they give you this little robe thing, and it doesn't come together in the back. It's called the ICU. That's when I discovered what the Army draft really was. (laughs) They put me in that room with 13 of us all together, 12 others. We call it death row. They put us in there to die. They didn't want us to die on the main ward. It would discourage patients that had a chance to live. Isn't that interesting? They put us all in one room to die. The 13th obituary is the last one to be written. And I'm the last guy living. They all died before I left that hospital. Every one of them. I just got to tell you a little story about my little teenage wife. They had her and all those of us, 13, and they had the family members in a Quonset hut, just an old World War II half-dome building, beat-up old thing, wooden floors, one bathroom service, five or six apartments on each side. It was, it was terrible. But they were right there within a short walk. In five minutes, you could be with your loved one if you get there quick enough before they died. All the loved ones died in the middle of the night, and none of them had their family with them. But at night... My wife's room was right by the front door, and she could hear the screen door when it would, that, that spring would pop and twang against the wooden back stop of that door. And then the rattly doorknob would bang when it, because it wasn't attached to anything, just sitting in there. And she could hear them coming. 
three, a line officer, an XO, uh, an officer, an executive officer on duty, and a doctor. And the executive officer on duty is typically a chaplain. So they were three, walk, and military style, they walked in step, shoulder to shoulder down that wooden floor, thump, thump. You know what my little teenage wife would do? She'd hear them knocking on a door and then screams of denial, two and three. Everybody died between midnight and 4 a.m., most of them around 2 to 3 a.m. Every night, she heard those people walk down that corridor, knocking on doors and people screaming, no, no, no. You know what she did? She'd get out of her bed. She'd kneel down in front of that door and put her hands up on the door. And she'd say, death angel, don't you stop here tonight. Don't you stop here tonight. And if you thought I'm here because I'm tough, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So who's in that intensive care unit waiting on me? Well, there were other wives that got to come in before Brenda because it's on round robin visitation. And the guy before me, that got a visitor, was 100% third degree, had no skin, guaranteed to die like me, no hope. His wife came in, took off her wedding ring, and she threw it on his bed. And this is an exact quote. She said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. And she walked out. I saw it. My little teenage wife saw it. I couldn't see her. When they uh, opened the door to let that woman out, they let Brenda in. And the doctor pointed at me, and I could see with my left eye. I pointed, he pointed at me, and I read his He said, that's your husband. I read her lips, and she said, no, it's not. I died right then inside. I just a thousand deaths. She didn't say that because she didn't want it to be me. She, didn't, she said it because she didn't think it was me. She thought it was somebody else. He walks her over. He says, Miss Brenda, this is your husband. She said, no, it's not. Someone said the eyes are the windows of the soul. She looked in my good eye. I guess she saw furniture in this old house. The house was burned, but the furniture survived. She said, Doc, this is Davy. And she bent down and kissed my burnt face. And she said, I just want you to know I really love you. Welcome home, Davy. And when she says, Davy, <laughs> I said, Doc, I'm getting better. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not going home now. And I said, I'm sorry. I can't look good for you. And she said, baby, you never were good looking. <laughs> she brought back my hope that I had lost pulling a tube out. She brought back the joy I lost when I couldn't laugh again because death became my bed partner. I just didn't want to live. I was still master of my own destiny. I was still trying to be the man I thought I was and I didn't know how to be. You can never, and I want to talk to the men and pardon my, I'm not emotional, I'm allergic to this carpet and it's just messing with me somewhere. Oh Lord. But gentlemen, please hear me. Every one of your, your mighty men, your, your good men, but you can never be the man you want to be without Christ being the man he ought to be in you. 
You just can't be what God made you to be without Christ. And I want every man to know, I know what manliness is, and I'm not going to apologize for my tears. I, I went 12 months, eight months in the war after the first body count, the first few days I was there, and then eight, that eight months plus four months in the hospital of my year and two months, the first four months, not a tear. And God delivered me in, a, in too long a story to tell, but God gave my tears back. Sometimes I think he gave me too many, but I'd rather have too many than none at all. You got it? I'm all right. I'll take this old carpet any day. And they put me in a tank called the Hubble Tank in a room called Debreedment. The tank, the Hubble Tank, we nicknamed the pit. And the, the Debreedment room, we nicknamed hell. They put you in this tank of water to whenever your body displacement pushes the water up when you're laying flat, it'll come to about here on you. You can breathe. And then very gently, they splash water on your charred remains. And it softens the skin that's now charcoal. And then they fillet you and they cut that off little by little. They're going to take a little bit at a time because it'll drive you insane. And while I'm almost finished, I hope you can stay with me just another minute. You're so patient. I'm pushing the limit on this, but thank you. It hurt so bad, I just went nuts. I, I lost all sanity. I reached up, and with these fingers, this thumb was gone. That was made out of my hip several years later. Like I tell kids, don't suck your hip. <laughs> they look at me like, what? These fingers were still strong. My muscles had not atrophied, and I reached up, and I grabbed. Her hair was a little longer than the other. There were six of them working on me, six women. And she was bent over a little too far, and I grabbed her hair, and I flipped her into that tank. And I had her head down in that water and I was trying to drown her because I thought she was trying to kill me. And that's how insane you go with pain, just pain. I thought I was on fire again. I thought everything, everything was wrong. Well, five others had her out immediately, but when I looked up, I saw my skin all in her hair and her white uniform is now pink with my diluted blood. And I was so embarrassed. They said, he's had enough. And I said, yes, he's had enough. And put me on a gurney and pushed me down to death row. That's what we called the ICU, 13 of us. On the way, the medic said, in the morning at 8.30, we're going to do this again. I said, no, you're not. He said, what do you mean? I said, no, you're not. You're not going to do this to me again. You see, I was still master my own destiny. And when I said to him, the army itself is not being able to put me back in that tank. That wasn't bravado. I asked you, would they put a dead man in that tank? I still had control of my destiny. I was still master. I was still the man I thought I was. But I wasn't the man enough to be what God wanted me to be because I had not given up my destiny. Destination is where you're going. Destiny is how you go about getting there. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. I was not going to go back in that tank again. I was still suicidal to the point I was going to take my life where they'd ever put me back. He said, then you'll die. I said, well, I don't want to hear that. He said, well, what's the difference? If you're going to cure yourself? Or... I said, well, the difference is I'm going to be awake all night with anxiety attacks. Sure enough, 8.30 the next morning, I hadn't slept. Here he comes. I hear the rattly wheel on that gurney, sound like a Walmart shopping cart, come down that corridor from hell to pick me up in death row. They got there, and they pushed the gurney up, and they forgot to lock the wheels. You know what's coming. When they got on each end to swing me over, the gurney separated at the foot end, I saw his hand, I threw out my elbows, I'm holding on to the gurney on one arm 
elbow in the bed with the other, and I'm holding it together, but my feet went through and just jarred my whole body when I hit. Now my whole body's about to fall through, and you can imagine my life would take another change. Bigger than when I thought I wasn't a Mexican, I thought I was. He was six foot seven, I dare say, 350 pounds, not an ounce of body fat. When he moved, cannonballs popped up on that big old chest, shoulders, and arms. Popeye forearms, big old tattoo right here. He was bald, he was black, and his name was Rosie. That's what was tattooed right there, Rosie, so he could remember. <laughs> I don't look like one, but I am a Rosie. He threw an arm under the back of my neck, and I stiffened my neck. I realized he's catching me in the fall between these beds. With his other arm, he picked me up. I was a featherweight. He turned, and no gurney for Rosie. He physically carried me all the way down that entire wing to that room we called hell. Lowered me into that tank we called the pit. He backstepped, leaned against the wall, folded those giant arms. I looked over in the morning sun, cast its golden hue against the tears running down that beautiful ebony skin. Like streams of fire splashing on his arms. And his lips were moving. He was praying for me. Rosie was praying for me. When I started grabbing for hair, they said he's had enough. They didn't want a re-encounter of the day before. Rosie come and he picked me up out of that filthy, miry, bloody water. He turned and again, no gurney for Rosie. And he carried me over his arms. I draped like an old cloth. And as he walked back to death row, these are the words he repeated, identical, verbatim, I just don't have his incredible, magnificent, baritone voice. He said, you'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. He got me and lowered me into that air mattress and extracted those forklifts and turned and faced me. I looked in the face of a man I'd never seen before. Hey, pretty bad when the guy outlasts his battery. <laughs> then he kissed my forehead, which I'd never let a man do, and he walked away, and I could stop right there, and that'd be the end of a story and a great weekend together, and I think we'd all say it was fun, but there's more to it. It's only a brief moment. It happened 22, 20 years later, 20 years from the time he carried me. 20 years later, I'm speaking for the Air National Guard 4th of July event at Redmond Field in Oregon. 20,000 people came to hear me speak. A woman walks up at the end of it in a fine business suit, short crop, kind of salty, I call it black and white hair, you know. She's a little older than me. She said, you're Dave, aren't you? I said, yes, well, I'm thinking she's trying to identify the speaker. Dude, I'm the only guy there, one eye, one ear, one eyed, flying purple people leader. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, that's your nickname. Your real name's David. I said, well, it's not Bartholomew. She said, but that's your middle name. Well, who would have known that was my middle name? Y'all didn't know that. She said, your first name's Milton. You're Milton David Reaver, R-O-E-V-E-R, -E -E right? I said, yes, I am. Who are you? 
She said, I'm the nurse she pulled in the tank 20 years ago. I apologize. She said, oh, no, no. She said, I thought it was you. I just didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> then I remembered Rosie. I said, ma'am, do you remember a guy named Rosie? If I tapped her on the head with a two by four, she staggered, came out of a trance. Look like. She said, I hadn't thought of him in years. I said, do you know what his real name was? She said, all I remember is Rosie, written right there on the table. I said, that's him. I said, you know where he is? She said, I don't know. I said, you know where he came from? Maybe he's there. She said, I don't know where he came from. Pay close attention. I said, when did he come to Brook Army Medical Center without reservation? When you did? I said, when did he leave again without any reservation? She instantly replied, he left when you left. My friends tell me that the angel of the Lord caps around about them that fear him and serve him, and I do both, but I don't know. Do angels have tattoos? And angels all have to be white like me. You know, we get all kinds of ideas, don't we? What if he wasn't an angel on a sign? What if he was a man on a mission? He didn't care what color I was. He didn't care what rank I was. He didn't care what branch of service I was in. All he knew was he saw a guy falling through the cracks of life and he grabbed him before he could hit bottom. That's the Rosie I'm talking about. So whenever I thought today about why am I here, I know I'm with believers. Unbelievers don't go to church very often. Who knows? Oh, can you imagine someone coming to church not right with God? Whoa. Maybe you aren't, and maybe we can get you right before you leave. I don't know. But I hope I can get this across to you. If there's anything I'm asking, I'm asking you to be a Rosie to somebody in San Diego today, in Carlsbad or wherever we are. Be a Rosie. Carry them where they couldn't get to on their own. Give them words of encouragement. You'll be fine. You're going to be all right. You're going to make it. Words of encouragement. And whenever they hate themselves enough to take their own life, kiss them on the forehead. Give them a love and life and hope. Be a rosy to somebody. And in closing, I have a little short video. It's really, really only a few minutes long. If you got a second to watch it, I'll show you where I'm a rosy. I'm a rosy to my troops all over the world. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, UAE, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Bosnia, Kosovo, North Africa, South Korea, all through Asia, all over the world. If there's military troops there, I'm 75, they still send me because I got food to put on the table and they want to eat at the table. So... What you're going to see is the downrange where I went and I, in a lot of those countries. Some of them are classified. I can't even tell you where I was because they never even told me where I was. I went in in the dark, came back in the dark. Never knew where I was. But they had a guy trying to take his life. They wanted me to talk to him. And I don't think I ever lost a warrior. I don't think I ever lost a soldier. Not one. I don't know if any of them ever lost downrange. You'll also see the ranches I built, one in Colorado and one in Texas to bring our warriors to, to get them out of the installations, institutions, hospitals, and hotel rooms. Get them into a place that's way out in the mountains. You'll see one in Texas in the hill country and the other in Colorado at 9,000 feet elevation. Then you're gonna see the most difficult thing I've ever been asked to do for my country. Oh, Dave, you talked about that, right? Get injured in Vietnam? No, no, no. More difficult than that. The most difficult thing I've asked to do in my country is to bring home 
grinding away the night at 30,000 feet or less, an airplane full of American warriors that gave their life with valor on the field of battle to let you and me sit in this room without fear of someone pulling a gun and shooting us because we're Christians. That fear has grown incrementally closer in the last few years. America needs Jesus. You can be cynical, be unbelieving, be hard-hearted, be nasty in this whole world and think you're better off. Or you can live large in the world that a man named Jesus came and changed because he was not willing to be cynical. And the very people that destroyed his body the best they could could not destroy his spirit and the spirit that raised Christ from the dead if it dwells in you in your mortal body you can be as born again as anybody ever born again in history you can be as born again as Peter and Paul you can know the same Jesus these folks did no reason to be wrong when you can be made right so I'm going to lead you in a simple simple prayer there's another angel flight coming and the ticket's already paid for. It's bought, paid for. If you haven't received it, get it now because the day it's punched, there's a seat reservation for you and I recommend you get a window seat and enjoy the view. Don't miss out on your relationship with Christ. To do this, I'm going to do what we do in our marriage seminars at our ranches. You saw the two ranches there. Weren't they beautiful? We do marriage retreats and couples in the military that are going through separation and divorce come giving it one last chance and we've had one couple that didn't make it through they just chose not to reconcile out of the thousands that have been through we've never had but one failure and I think that's a pretty good record this is what we do we renew our vows and if you would like to renew your vows let's do that with our bridegroom today amen alright let's renew our vows and if you need to make some vows, now's the chance to do it. If someone takes a second to do it, let's pray it out loud. You don't even have to close your eyes and bow your heads. Bow your eyes and close your heads. <laughs> Are you ready? Lord Jesus, I'm in your house. I know you're here. I love your presence. I do. I say I do. I do love you. I will be yours forever. I commit myself to you, body, soul, and spirit. And you gave yourself to me. And you said, I do love you. And I thank you, Jesus. Because today, I am born again. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead. And I believe you're coming back for me. I pray all this in the name above every name on earth. The name of Jesus. Amen. Wow. What an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages information about upcoming events and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. 
Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.